We're continuing our series in the book of Acts. Remember last weekend was Mother's Day, so we took a break. But two weeks ago, we're in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to pick up, you know, pretty much right where we left off. I've entitled the, the message this weekend, Get Up, Don't Give Up. Get Up, Don't Give Up. And you'll know more about that here in, in a moment. But, you know, life has a way of knocking us down at times. The rug can be pulled out from under us. Uh, it could be a sickness. It could be an untimely death. And when life happens, and from one moment to the next, our world is seemingly turned upside down, God's message through the text that we're going to be studying today is simply this. Get up and don't give up. Our first point is this. Life has its seasons. There are the seasons of life. Many of you the season of promotion, you're graduating, you're going to be graduating, your graduation ceremony, you're leaving high school, going to college, leaving college, going into the workforce, you're in a season of transition. The Bible says that there's a time and a season for everything under the sun in Ecclesiastes 3.1. But the text where we left off a few weeks ago, in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says this. It says, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and it was strengthened so we understand that there are times in our life seasons in our life for the new testament church early on here in acts 9 it was now a season of peace and why was it a time of peace it was a time of peace because the number one agitator of the church saul of tarsus had just been gloriously converted and now he became an advocate for the cause of christ but the second half of that verse, Acts 9, 31, it's very interesting. It says this, And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. So they're in this season, this time of peace. And during these different seasons of life, we need to capitalize upon them. Uh, you know, we need, to, we need to take advantage of whatever season of blessing or season of peace that we may be in. The way the church took advantage of that is it grew. And it multiplied. And the reason it grew and multiplied, because it was healthy. And the reason it was healthy is because two things were emphasized in the early church. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes there are churches that overemphasize the comfort of the Holy Spirit at the expense of the fear of the Lord. And sin is rampant in that church, such as the church at Corinth. And then there are other churches that overemphasize the fear of the Lord at the expense of the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and people are beaten down, and people are disheartened, and people are discouraged because they're always talking about sin and sin in your life and get the sin out of your life. What we need is balance. That's how a church becomes healthy. That's how a church grows. When we emphasize the fear of the Lord, absolutely, but also the comfort of the Holy Spirit, in our lives. But back to a moment for the different times or seasons of life. You know, if you look at a marriage, a marriage goes through different seasons. They say that the first season of marriage is the newly married couple uh, from your wedding day until about year five into your marriage. You are in a new marriage, and that's its own cycle, its own season. The next season is the middle years from year number six to year number 25 those are what are considered the middle years and usually the this season coincides with active parenting 
And uh, it's, it can be a very challenging time. And, and most marriages, it's during this period that they will trip up or even break up. And then the final stage, and by God's grace, this is the stage that we reach, is from year 26 until the Lord calls you home. And that's known as the empty nest years, or uh, that's the, the third stage or the third season that a marriage goes in. You can also quantify the different cycles of a marriage this way. First of all, there is this first cycle of a marriage, which is called romance, because we're talking about different times and different seasons. And then you reach the, the cycle in a marriage of disillusionment. You know, that's when the kids start showing up, the bills start to mount, you know, the demands of life, the stresses of life, and you could become, if you're not careful, you could become disillusioned, kind of just going through the motions. But then cycle number three, or stage number three, is there's an awakening. There's a renewing of your, of your marriage, and that's why, you know, we emphasize ministry to families here at Trinity, and we're going to have a big marriage conference this, this next year uh, around Valentine's, and, you know, we, we take advantage of moments and opportunities to help rekindle the flame and rekindle the fire under marriages, because all marriages pretty much go through these different seasons or cycles, romance, disillusionment, awakening, and then finally, a number four, mature love. The goal in every marriage, you know, we start in, in that first stage, but is to reach that place of maturity because life has different seasons. And we don't have to get discouraged or despair when we find ourselves in a particular season that may not be that pleasant. You know, for those of you that are in business, leaders, business leaders, for-profit or, or non-profit, even an organization kind of has a life cycle. There's the pioneering stage just getting started, getting it off the ground. Then there's the growing stage, the growth stage. And then there's the controlling stage, you know, wanting to, the systems and the processes and being able to maintain it. But if you're not careful, it'll reach the fourth stage, which is the declining stage. So your life spiritually, your marriage, your ministry, your business, there are times, there are seasons. We have to recognize the time and the season that we may be in and ask the Lord for his wisdom and how we can capitalize or what we need to learn during that particular time or season. That's where the church was at. It was a season of growth. It was multiplying. It was flourishing during this period of time. The second thing is faith alters facts. The second important lesson we're going to learn from our text that we're looking at here in Acts 9 is that faith doesn't deny reality. But faith in God and faith in God's promises can bend reality, can alter the facts. That God is not subject to the facts of life, the circumstances of your life or of my life. God, through his power, can alter those facts or those realities. Once again, faith never denies reality, but faith understands that there's a greater reality. The laws of God, the promises of God, and the blessings of God. During our time of worship, we were singing about how God is a God of miracles. I believe that. I know you believe that. He is a God of miracles. And we're going to look at two such miracles here in Acts chapter 9 and how faith in God and faith in God's promises can alter facts. Now briefly, in the book of Acts, we leave the narrative of Saul of Tarsus and for a brief moment, 
we talk about Peter. Luke tells us about Peter and some events in the life of Peter. And then in Acts chapter 10, Peter is mentioned again. But then basically after Acts 10, Peter's kind of like off the pages of the book of Acts. And it's all about the Apostle Paul. So here becomes a brief reintroduction to Peter. Remember Peter preached on Pentecost? Remember Peter, the first bonafide miracle, the gate called beautiful, chapter 3? Remember Peter was persecuted, was arrested, and all of that, and delivered from prison? And he's the main player in the church. But there's about to be a new front man, Saul of Tarsus. But we go back to an episode in the life of Peter in Acts chapter 9, verse 32. It says, as Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. Now, once again, Peter's going from community to community, and he's wanting to pray for, minister to, and encourage the believers. And once again, Christians weren't called Christians until Antioch, but they were referred to as disciples or people of the way or brethren or as here, Early Christians were referred to as saints. You see, I'm looking at a church today here in Trinity Central, those of you in the chapel, those watching live video streaming, I'm looking at a church filled with saints this morning. Well, based on that response, I know sometimes we feel more like ain'ts than we do saints. I understand that. And many times we're confused and we think, well, don't I have to die and like a hundred years has to pass and then the church votes and then they induct us into sainthood? No, no, no. The Bible's very clear. Not all of us are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, or teachers, but all of us are ministers of the gospel. All of us are kings and priests in Christ Jesus. All of us have a ministry. It's called the ministry of reconciliation. I'm looking at a church today filled with ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hello, ministers. And when the Bible says you're a saint, you know what that means? That means you're someone special that's been set apart by God. That's what the word saint means, from the word sanctified, meaning that you've been set apart for a special use. So you are a saint in Christ Jesus already. You don't have to die and then wait a hundred years and have so many miracles and then the church votes on it. You're a saint right now. So turn to the person next to you and say, hello, Saint Tommy. Hello, Saint John, right? So Peter went to visit the saints. And here's what happens, verse 33. There he met a man named Aeneas who for eight years had been sick in bed and could not move. And Peter said to Aeneas, I love this, Jesus Christ has healed you. Let's say that together. Jesus Christ has healed you. Get up and make up your bed. Right away, he stood up. And many people in the towns of Lydda and Sharon saw Aeneas and became followers of the Lord. As a result of this miracle, of this miraculous healing, many people in that area became believers in Jesus Christ. Now, who is Aeneas? We don't know much about him. We don't know if he was married. We don't know what his occupation was. But what we do know is that for eight long years he suffered. For eight long years the only view that Aeneas had was the ceiling above the room that he lied in. 
that he was bedridden, the Bible tells us, for eight long years. We don't know what the sickness was. We don't know what the condition was, but we know that he was laid low. We know that he was flat on his back for a period of eight years. Peter shows up, and Peter says, Jesus Christ has healed you. Get up and make up your bed. You know, sometimes life can get the best of us. Sometimes events happen in life, a sickness, a disease, an untimely death, and the rug is pulled out from under us. And next thing we know, we're flat on our back looking up. Life has a way of knocking us down. God bless Aeneas. His trial with sickness lasted eight years. Something was about to change that day. From one moment to the next, just like from one moment to the next, your world can be turned upside down. By God's grace and God's power, from one moment to the next, your world can be turned right side up. And Aeneas is about to experience an encounter with God's power in his life. By virtue of all of you being here today, here's, here's I know at least this much about your life. You were able to get out of bed this morning. And more than half the battle in life is simply being able to get out of bed in life. And sometimes we take for granted the little things. But if you were able to get out of your bed today and make up your bed and come to church, how many know today is a good day and good things are happening in our lives? We can never take for granted the little things. To be able to get up out of your bed. Because Peter tells Aeneas, Jesus Christ has healed you. Get up and make up your bed. You know, it's very biblical. Before you leave the house in the morning, you should make up your bed. It's not there by accident. Now, I don't want a show of hands, but I, I would just like to know how many of you get up every morning and make up your bed before you start the day. All right, all the proud people just raise their hands like, oh yeah, that's a given. I've been doing that all my life. Well, good for you. Some of us, that's a habit we have to learn how to get involved in. Amen. But there's something about bringing order into a life of chaos and disorder by starting out in the morning, getting out of bed, and making up your bed. Something as simple as that can really set the course for the rest of your day. My wife and I have an agreement. Our agreement is this. The last one out of bed has to make it. I make sure I get out of bed first thing in the morning before she does. I ask her, what time are you getting up? Whatever time she says, I put my, my clock about five minutes earlier. Amen. I'm a smart one, I'll tell you. <laughs> get up and make up your bed. You know, like Aeneas, sometimes we find ourselves flat on our back. Life has a way of doing that, doesn't it? And sometimes the problems we face aren't solved overnight. He suffered for eight long years. Now, it would be nice if our problems had an expiration date on it. It would be nice if problems only lasted 90 days. Next time you go through a, a marriage, a challenging season in your marriage, you're like, hallelujah, this is only going to last 90 days. It's day 80. I got 10 more days, and it's going to be over. Woo, I can last 10 more days. <laughs> Problems don't have an expiration date. There's not a specific time, uh, uh, arbitrary timetable that's set on problems. Sometimes they last longer than we anticipated them to last. Maybe you're going through a lengthy legal battle. Maybe you're going through a lengthy financial battle. Maybe you've been through a multi-year emotional battle or physical battle or spiritual battle or maybe a battle with some addiction. It doesn't matter how long you've been battling it. 
The message for you is the same as the message for Aeneas. Jesus Christ has healed you. It's time to get up and make up your bed and embrace the bright future that God has for you. Peter said those five incredible words. Jesus Christ has healed you. Jesus Christ has healed you. He didn't say Jesus Christ can heal you. He said he has, past tense, healed you. You know, something incredible happened 2,000 years ago. We partook of communion earlier. And communion is a declaration. It's a proclamation of the death of Christ until he comes. And it causes us to remember, and there are two elements in the communion that we partake of, the Lord's Supper, the, the cracker, his body, and the juice, his blood. Two elements represent the atoning work of Jesus, that not only did he shed his blood for your sins to be forgiven, and your sins were forgiven 2,000 years ago at the cross, signed, sealed, and delivered. Legally, you are forgiven before God, but you need to personalize that and make it vitally your own by confessing your sins to God and asking for forgiveness and declaring the Lordship of Christ. But it happened 2,000 years ago, but you need to make it real in your world today. But it's already signed, sealed, and delivered. But the second element of communion, his body, I just read it in my daily devotional reading through Scripture. I, I was in 1 Peter yesterday. In 1 Peter 2.24, it says, He himself bore our sins on the cross. And it says, And by his stripes you were healed. Peter's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah says, You are healed. But Peter says, You were healed. You see, everything God's done for you and me, it's past tense. It was already done 2,000 years ago, signed, sealed, and delivered. It's not about I need to be healed. It's that I was healed. I am healed by faith in what Christ has done for me at the cross 2,000 years ago. That's faith. Faith doesn't deny the fact that you're battling some sickness or some disease. But in light of that current reality, God's reality is far greater. Faith doesn't deny reality, but faith says, I trust and I believe what Scripture says. And Scripture says, 1 Peter 2, 24, that by his stripes I am healed. And we begin to, by faith, make that proclamation and make that declaration. If you will declare a thing, it shall be established for you, the Bible says. You and I need to begin to declare who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ, and what Christ has done for us. And there's power in that name, power in the name of Jesus to bring healing and wholeness in our lives. Think about this. In Acts chapter 3, verse 6, a man who was lame from, from birth, he's laid at the gate called Beautiful. Peter and John walk by, and he's looking for money. He's looking for alms. And, and Peter says, silver and gold we have none, but what we have we give to thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And a miracle happened, and he stood up. Power in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 16, there was this demon-possessed woman. She was a fortune teller, and, the, and a spirit of fortune worked through her, and she was harassing Paul and Silas, and Paul finally got fed up with it, and he turned to her, and he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And he rebuked the devil and set that woman free from demonic power in the name of Jesus Christ. She can no longer tell the future. Paul and Silas end up being arrested uh, because of that, but then God performed a miracle while they were in prison. There's such power in the name of Jesus that these seven sons of Sceva, they weren't Christians, but they saw what would happen when Peter and Paul and the apostles would use the name of Jesus, and they thought that they would do the same. So they ran into this demon-possessed man, Acts chapter 19, and they said this. They said, in the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches, we adjure you, come out of the man. And the devil spoke through the man. And the devil said, 
Paul we know and Jesus we know, but who are you? Now they didn't have an answer. And the Bible says that this demon-possessed man jumped on those seven sons of Sceva, beat them up, stripped off their clothes, and they became the first streakers in the New Testament. <laughs> Not a good thing to play with this power unless you know the person behind the power. In Mark chapter 16, verses 17 through 20, Jesus said, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name you'll cast out devils. In my name you'll speak with new tongues. He goes on to say, in my name, you'll lay hands on the sick and they will recover. There's power in the name of Jesus. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now let's read verse 14 out loud together. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. There's power in the name of Jesus. Throughout my years of being a pastor, I've had families, I've had individuals come up to me even after services like this and they would say, Pastor, there are strange things happening in our home. My son or my daughter is fearful. There are strange things happening in their bedroom at night, and they're fearful. And I say, well, first of all, God's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. And then I ask, have, have you in any way, knowingly, opened the door to the enemy? The Bible says don't give the devil a foothold. There are times that we can open the door to demonic activity in our homes and in our lives by way of the television, by way of video games, uh, by way of social media, uh, music, different arts and crafts. There are ways that we can open up the door to the enemy. And as long as we close any open doors and we're not giving the devil a foothold, he has no right. He has no place in our life and in our homes. And so I tell them, listen, there's power in the name of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples, 70 of them, to preach and teach and heal and deliver those tormented by demons. When they return, the thing that they were most overjoyed about wasn't the fact of those who became followers of Messiah or those who were healed, but they couldn't, they couldn't uh, believe that demons were subject to them in the name of Jesus. And Jesus said in verse 17 through 20 of Luke 10, he said, uh, behold, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by in any means harm you and then he said and I beheld Satan fall like lightning to the ground and then he said don't rejoice that demons are subject to you in my name but rather rejoice that your name is written in heaven did you know that as a bona fide believer in Christ you have authority over all the power of the enemy and nothing and nothing shall by in any means harm you and if the devil shows up that's the biggest mistake he could ever make coming to my house or coming to your house or coming to my room or going to your room because there's power in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to bring about healing and deliverance and miracles and Aeneas heard those words Jesus Christ has healed you get up and make up your bed and after eight long grueling years he got up and he was healed and he was never the same again well then something happens to another disciple in the Lord look at uh, Acts chapter 9 verse 36 
In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. That's a really good name. Do we have anyone by that name in service? Raise your hand. Any Tabithas out there? We had one yesterday. That's it. Moms, expected moms, if you're looking for a good name for your daughter, that's a good one, Tabitha, which when translated in Greek is Dorcas. You want to stay away from that one if all possible. <laughs> Who was always doing good in helping the poor. Now, we don't know much about Tabitha. We don't know if Tabitha was married. We don't know if Tabitha had children. But here are two things that this story, we're going to learn about this incredible woman. First of all, it calls her, before anything else, a disciple. Isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus allows women the rank of being a disciple of his? That's more than Aristotle or Plato could ever do for women. Jesus offers women the rank of discipleship. Not only that, they're called prophetesses in the book of, of Acts, which means a prophet, a female version of a prophet is a prophetess. There are female versions of deacons called deaconesses in, uh, in the Bible. And so Christ offers women that rank of spiritual authority and, 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 and spiritual leadership. And that's what we know about Tabitha. What we also know about Tabitha was this. Her name means graceful and beautiful. And so we know she was graceful. We know that she was beautiful. It was her faith in Christ that caused her to become graceful and beautiful. Here's another thing that we know about her is that she was generous. And why was she generous? Because Tabitha was an entrepreneur. Tabitha was a successful businesswoman. Tabitha was a fashion designer. And she not only had this business that was able to meet her needs and the needs of her loved ones and the needs of her family, but she was so good at what she did, she had more than enough to meet the needs of others that were around her. And so she was very generous. She did good helping others. Which leads us to our third point, and that is this. Profit can profit the poor. That every Christian should understand that having a poverty mentality may be good for certain religions, but it's not good theology. It's not good for Christians to go through life believing that God wants you to be poor. You see, every Jewish person understands the mandate from heaven that you're to be fruitful and you're to multiply and you're to replenish the earth, the Genesis mandate. Every Jewish person understood that it was designed, God designed us to make a profit in life, to be fruitful and to multiply. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says, verses 18 and 19, that God gives you the power to create wealth. Imagine that. God Almighty looks at you, looks at me, and he says he's given you the power to create wealth. Many people go through life with a scarcity mentality. Many people go through life and they feel like there are only so many slices in a pie and if, 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 if the more others take, the less there'll be for me. That's a scarcity mentality. When God said, no, there's not just a certain amount. You can create wealth with God's help, with God's wisdom, with God's favor, with God's blessing, doing it God's way, I'm looking at a church today filled with wealth creators. Oh, you did good there. You did good. All the other services, they just sat there. I'm like, hello. When a, when a pastor compliments you, you know, pastors don't normally compliment their congregations, but when a pastor does compliment you, you got to recognize it and you got to show some love back to the pastor. I'm looking at a church filled with wealth creators. Amen. And that doesn't mean that we love money. We love God. 
There are many people that love money, ignore God, and use people. We love God. We use money to help people. That's the way. That's the way. That's the order. God wants it in. Amen? You know, and Tabitha, she did all things well. Uh, look at verse 37. But something happened. About that time, she became sick and died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and the other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, and then he got down on his knees and he prayed because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet, and then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Tabitha, from one day to the next, became sick unexpectedly, and she died. And the disciples were heartbroken. Why? Because Tabitha was such a gifted individual. She cared about others. She was generous. She was kind. She was helpful. She had a successful business. She did everything with great quality. You know, it's not the quantity of life that really matters. It's the quality of life that matters. On that final day, when we stand before the Lord, we want to hear him say, well done, not much done, thou good and faithful servant. Sometimes quantity can be at the expense of quality. And that's why in life, it's not about the quantity of time that we have with our loved ones, but the quality of time that we have with them. Concerning your work, your ministry, your craft, your skill, your talent. For Tabitha, she was a fashion designer. For you, it may be something else. It's not about the quantity, it's about the quality. That you do all things well. That you do all things with excellence. You see, God's not only a God of quantity, but he, more importantly, is a God of quality. And the quality of his miracle that was about to take place was astounding. This woman was dead. And the early church called for Peter, and Peter comes into the room, and he, and he prays for her. And where did he learn to do that? Well, in Luke chapter 8, verse 54, Jesus went into a room. A little girl had died, and he said, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, arise. Peter goes in that room, and just like Jesus did, he has everybody leave that room, and then he kneels and he prays, and then he looks at Tabitha, and he says, Tabitha, get up. And her eyes opened up, and a miracle occurred, and she was raised gloriously from the dead. You know, whether it's sickness or whether it's death, sometimes life cuts our feet out from under us. We find ourselves like Aeneas or like Tabitha, flat on our back, looking up at the ceiling. For Tabitha, she was dead and needed to be raised to new life. Maybe there's some spiritual deadness in your life. You know, like Aeneas, maybe you've been battling something and, and maybe you're at a place where you've given up hope. Maybe you feel dead to love today. Maybe you feel dead to joy. 
Maybe you feel dead to all feeling. Maybe you're simply numb on the inside. There have been too many hurts, too many disappointments, too many letdowns, too many broken promises. But God's word to you is, get up. Don't give up. Get up. Get up. Make your bed. Sometimes things come to an end. But an ending simply means there's a new beginning. Because all of life has different times and different seasons. What's the season that you may find yourself in? It may not be the season you want to be in. But just like a previous season ended and now you find yourself in a new season, there's a new beginning that God has for you. And I believe the word of the Lord for you today was the same of that to Aeneas. Jesus Christ has healed you. Get up. Those of you that have been going through a multi-year battle or struggle or difficulty, God's word to you today in this message is Jesus Christ has healed you. It's time to get up. Don't give up. It's time to get up. You know, I love the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis because Joseph was a guy that would get knocked down, but he wouldn't stay down. He got knocked down by his brothers because of their envy and their jealousy, and they threw him in a pit, and they sold him as a slave to the Ishmaelites, and he ends up in Egypt. He was knocked down, but he wasn't knocked out. He got back up. He didn't give up. And then he starts working for Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him, and he, and he ends up being thrown in prison for a crime he did not commit. He was knocked down, but he wasn't knocked out. He didn't give up. He got up. And while he was in prison, he was making the best of his circumstances. God gave him a gift to be able to interpret dreams. He was with a chief butler and a chief baker, and they both had dreams, and he was able to interpret their dreams. He told the chief cupbearer, when you get restored to your position, will you remember me? Well, the chief cupbearer got restored to his position, but forgot to tell Pharaoh about Joseph. Once again, Joseph got knocked down because somebody forgot about Joseph. But Joseph was knocked down, but he wasn't knocked out. Joseph was down, but he got up. He didn't give up. Because even though man may forget about you, isn't it good to know today that God will never forget about you? He knows who you are, he knows where you are, and he knows the thoughts that he has for you. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and to give you a hope. And so his message to you today is, Jesus Christ has made you whole. Jesus Christ has healed you. Jesus Christ has delivered you. It's time to get up, it's time to make up, it's time to move forward, and it's time to embrace the new beginning that God has for you because God's in the miracle working business just like an event can turn your world upside down from one moment to the next God by his grace God by his mercy and God by his power from one day to the next can turn your world right side up and that's why I believe every single one of you you have a bright future ahead of you I'd like every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you're speaking to the hearts of men and women. And your message to them is, get up. Don't give up. Get up. Get going. There's a bright future ahead of you. Yes, things come to an end, but an ending means a new beginning. What's that new beginning that God has for you? Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today, and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you can open up your heart to Him. You can receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Receive the greatest gift of all, the gift of eternal life. 
Or maybe you're here today and you need to rededicate your life to Christ. You're not where you used to be. You're not where you need to be in your relationship with Jesus. It's not too late. God brought you here today to hear his voice calling out to you. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer. The Bible says if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I want you to say this prayer out loud with the rest of us. I want you to say it with your own mouth, but more importantly, I want you to mean it from your own heart. Here we go. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today. I'm going to get up and never give up. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?